0: welcome to Run the Table. I'm your host, Bryce Tinson, and the series is tied up 2-2. Two two. The Bucks even it up after a 40-point performance, but not from who we're used to. Giannis only had 26 this game. I say only because he put up 41 and then 42. He had 26 on, I think it was 11 of 19 shooting, so he's really efficient, but the 40-point performance goes to none other than Chris Middleton. And we're seeing this really weird thing with Chris Middleton where he has a great game like he did for game four, but I guarantee you, I guarantee you with 100% certainty, game five, he's going to have like 20 points and he's going to shoot 40% from the field. He might not even hit 20 points. We're seeing he had, I'll I'll go through his stat line. He had 29 in game one, he had 11 in game two, he had 18 in game three, and then 40 in game four. His inconsistency has been the real reason why the Bucks aren't up in this series and it's only tied. Because Giannis, I mean his first game he put up 20 points, but that was after coming off a hyperextension literally less than a week before. He, he hyperextended his knee. So it's two to two. The Bucks were the better team, and I'll get into some of the some of the you know reasons why they won. But I'll just go through the stats real quick. Giannis finished with, as I said, twenty six points, fourteen rebounds, eight assists, three steals, two blocks. One of the steals was a huge momentum swing off of an inbound. He tipped it. I think they were, they were trying to throw it into DeAndre Ayton. He tips it to himself, runs down the court, gets an easy dunk, swings the momentum. And then he has one of the best blocks in NBA history, especially in the finals. They, uh, Chris Paul's running a pick and roll. It was either Chris Paul or Devin Booker, I can't remember, was running a pick and roll. And Aiton sets the screen at like the free throw line. And Giannis has to switch or has to show on the um, on him coming either Booker, or CP3 coming over the top, and Ayton rolls back door. Well, only Giannis could make this play because I think it was CP3, throws a lob up to Aiden, which should be an easy dunk. Giannis pivots and goes and meets Aiden at the rim and blocks him. What should have been an easy two points turned into a block and a transition down the court for the Bucks. And I think they scored on that possession, which would have made it a four-point swing. That is... I mean that was the biggest play of the game, and as I said, Chris Middleton had 40 points. He wasn't efficient shooting; he was 15 of 33, which is a it's it's around 45 percent, I think. He, I mean, he doesn't. We'll get into we'll get into Chris Middleton, but he had 40 points, so you can't blame him for that. He was pretty good from the line. I think he shot. Yep, yeah, he was seven for eight from the line, so he made his free throws when they counted. Drew Holiday was terrible on the offensive side of the ball. yet again, he had 13 points on four of 20 shooting. He missed 16 shots. He missed more shots than Chris Middleton made, which, I mean, he shot the second most on the team. Drew Holiday did. Like what? He was over five from three. I don't understand how he could be so bad for being a max player. It doesn't make any sense to me. He almost had a triple double, though, because he had seven rebounds and seven assists. But the good thing about Drew Holiday is that he is such a good defender that you, I mean, you wish he wouldn't shoot the ball as much as he does, but he is such a good defender that it kind of makes up for it. He, I mean, he has been clamping up Chris Paul, he has been putting the clamps on him. And I'll get into that in a little bit, but Devin Booker leads the way with the Suns. He had 42 on 17 of 28 shooting. He was the only Sun starter to not be in the minus, in the plus-minus category. And he also somehow managed to be the first NBA player in history to have 40 points with 7 fouls in a finals game. Or in any game for that matter. I don't know how he got away with a couple of the fouls that he did, but he did and he was able to stay in the game for the last couple minutes, which shouldn't have happened. And I'll get into the refs a little later. I know I keep pushing everything back a little bit, but I want to get through the stats first. This is the fourth time in an NBA Finals game that the opposing that opposing players each or had the opposing teams had one player at least score 40 points the most recent was 2001 when Iverson and Shaq both went for 40 I think Iverson had 48 and Shaq had 44 or they were switched something like that but Chris Paul was abysmal like he was worse than Drew Holiday he had 10 points on five of thirteen shooting with five turnovers. And that was Drew Holiday. Drew Holiday was his primary defender, and that's what he did. And Chris Paul's stats since game one, when Drew Holiday switched onto him in game two, he's averaged 17 points in five turnovers. Chris Paul doesn't turn the ball over. He has still had his assists, but that's because it's Chris Paul. But Chris Paul doesn't turn the ball over. That that's his been his main stake to claim is that he is Efficient with the ball in his hands, he's able to get guys the ball open. He he doesn't turn it over much. He's had he's averaged five turnovers over the last three games. I know it's insane to think about, but he has. And DeAndre Ayton wasn't great either. He I think he shot three for nine. He had six points, but he I mean he had seventeen rebounds, which DeAndre Ayton's going to do. He's going to get his rebounds, but. I mean, you can't really count on DeAndre Ayton right now. It doesn't feel like you can. And going back to the box, PJ Tucker had zero points. <laughs> he was he played twenty nine minutes. I did he foul out? I can't can't remember, but he didn't score any points. Yeah, he did he had five he had five fouls. So he was one for him fouling out. He was the he was minus three. Wow. Brooke Lopez was minus thirteen. I just noticed that. Pat Connaughton was plus 21. Put him in the game more. My goodness. He had 11 points, 9 rebounds, and an assist. He played 32 minutes. Oh, Brooke only played 19 minutes. Wow. Jesus. Yeah, Pat I mean, yeah, down the stretch, Pat did play more. I'm just not realizing that. But yeah, I mean, Pat Connaughton, plus minus master. Oh, what was Torrey Craig? Let's see what Torrey Craig was. He was plus 4. He was the only Suns player to be <laughs> to be plus, because campaign and Devin Booker were neutral. Everybody else was minus. That's hilarious. Torrey Craig is the plus minus machine. But this also marks the first time in NBA history. So wait, let me preface: the Suns shot fifty one percent from the field. The Bucks only shot forty percent. It's the first time in NBA finals history that a team lost while shooting over fifty percent and holding the opposing team to under forty two percent. And the reason why they still lost is because the Bucs shot the ball 19 more times. They had 17 offensive rebounds. I think it was 17. Let me check. Yep. They had 17 offensive rebounds, which led to that many more shots. They also won the turnover differential or the turnover points off of turnovers game 24 to 5. So if you're asking how this happened, those are your two answers. The Bucs ran better in transition, and they got boards off of misses. They also outscored the Suns 33-21 to in the fourth quarter. Chris Middleton had 14 in the fourth. Devin Booker had four. Now, Chris Middleton's 14 is a little inflated because he had, I think, four free throws at the end of the game to push him to 40. And I just – I mean, I need to talk about the refs for a second because they were – they were calling different stuff the entire game in the third quarter. <laughs> Jay Crowder is going to set a screen on, I don't know who. It doesn't matter, but PJ Tucker's guarding him, and PJ Tucker, being the defender that he is, is playing really aggressive. He is trying to keep it from or keeping Jay from setting a good screen, trying to push him off his line so that whoever was guarding the primary ball ball handler was able to slip under or over. And he gives him a shove. I wouldn't say a shove. He, he's like bumping into him. Jay Crowder flails his arms, acts like he's going to fall, and he gets a whistle. But he doesn't fall. Instead, he stays on his feet. After he hears the whistle, he, he... It was so it was so weird to watch because you can see, after the whistle blew, he made sure that he didn't fall on his face. And he got the foul call. Later in the fourth, Drew Holiday's driving in transition... Goes up for a layup. Devin Booker hugs him. And there's no foul called. This was when Booker had five fouls. The refs didn't call it. Then it happened again with Devin Booker. He had seven fouls. And you you just ask for the refs to be consistent with their with their foul calls. It's like, I would be okay with that last call if you were playing the whole game that way. But they weren't. That was the issue. They were calling ticky-tack fouls early on, and then that happens. And I know exactly what it was. There's two reasons. They didn't want Devin Booker to fall out with three and a half minutes, four minutes left. They also don't want to be the ones deciding games in the fourth quarter because they get so much pressure and they get berated every time that happens. So they just, they just instead, they just say no. But that's how the entire game should be. And that's a, you know what? They should get FIBA refs because the FIBA refs are... They let things go, and that's what should happen in the NBA. I'm tired of this BS flopping stuff. But Kendrick Perkins said that Chris Middleton is Batman yet again, and I'm going to fight him because he keeps saying this crap. You can't be Batman and go 29 in game one, 11 in game two, and 18 in game three in the finals, and then go for a 40 point and then be called Batman. Like he didn't, oh my God, Kendrick Perkins is pissing me off. He didn't shoot. As much as I love Chris Middleton and think he's a great player, he hasn't shot above 50% in any game in the series so far. He's been so bad on the road, it's unbelievable. I'm going to give you his splits. In the finals so far, This is so this is the finals, only four games. At home in the two games, he had 29 points per game, 45% field goal percentage, and 40% three-point percentage. On the road, he's averaging 20 points per game on 41% shooting from the field and 33 from deep. Like, that is that is terrible. You can't have that difference in the splits if you want to be called Batman. I mean, seriously. Like, he he finally shows up. And I, I mean, I love Chris Middleton, but you can't call him the best player on the team or Batman. That is obviously Giannis. Just because just because Chris Middleton's a better shooter than Giannis is, doesn't make him better. Giannis is easily the best player on that team and the Batman. I don't care. And I mean, honestly, Giannis has been the best player in the finals so far, without question. Without question, everybody else has had at least one bad game. Giannis hasn't. Even even oh my gosh, it's so. It's so stupid. I never thought I would say this because of, of what's happened with Giannis in the playoffs in the past, how he's kind of faded away in big moments, but I mean now he's he's showing up. He played amazing down the stretch. Amazing. Some interesting an interesting stat for you though that might kind of show the swing of the series. Giannis has 77 points on layups or dunks through the four games. The next highest is DeAndre Ayton with 33. That is a 44-point difference. Giannis has 17 more points off of layups and dunks than DeAndre Ayton, Chris Paul, and Devin Booker combined. 17 more. I'm just saying that I wouldn't be surprised if the Bucs win this thing in six with how the past two games have gone. And I saw some people saying, well, the Suns should feel good. The Bucs had 19 more shots. And they they still only lost by six points. To that, I say, you shot over 50% while the Bucs shot 40%. That's why. It's not because of the more shots and it was close. It's because the Bucs didn't hit their more shots. The Suns actually had more field goals made than the Bucs did. They had 40. The Bucs had 39 the reason the Bucks won is because they were the better team. Simple as that. It's that simple. I'm, I'm just, and I, I know I keep switching. I know I keep switching my pick, but I think the Bucks. If Giannis continues to play like this, and the Suns really don't have an answer, they kind of did with Booker, but I mean he's not going to be he's not going to be able to win you games. You need Chris Paul to play well, and he didn't. I think, I think I like the Bucks. And I know, I know I keep switching it up, but I think I like the Bucks, And I think that's who I'm going to go with to finish out the series. I got a couple good things for you coming up a little later. Got some news to talk about, a lot of NFL stuff. I got on the record, off the record. And then I have team breakout players for every single team in the NFL. So stick around. Okay, we're going to talk about some other news circulating around, a lot of NFL stuff as we get closer to the season. The big thing that I saw is Adam Schefter reported that the Eagles could be a team to watch in the Deshaun Watson trade. I don't know how I feel about that, but I I can kind of understand it. Like you trade a for a couple firsts, probably you probably have to give up two, maybe maybe one because of the situation Deshaun is in, and then you have to give up a young player. The best young player on the Eagles is Devonte Smith. And he hasn't taken a snap yet. So, what happens? I'm not really sure. Because I, if I'm the Texans, I want Devontae Smith. And then probably Jalen Hurts. That would be the trade. And then a first. Because I'm not taking Deshaun Watson unless I know he's going to play for anything less. I mean, actually, if you're... I, I said that wrong. I said that wrong. And now that I'm thinking about it, I said that wrong. If you're the Eagles, you're not giving up more than one first, and you're probably only gonna be willing to give up Jalen Hurts because you don't know if Deshaun Watson is gonna play. Like you don't know what the situation with it with him is. If you're the Texans, you would like to get multiple firsts in Jalen Hurts or multiple firsts in Devontae Smith or one first Jalen Smith or Devontae Smith and Jalen Hurts. You do something like the um, Lions and Rams did where you trade, you swap quarterbacks and you give them two firsts. That's what you would hope for if you're the Texans. But because of the situation with Deshaun Watson, nobody knows if that's going to be the case. Um, Another interesting, very, I mean, very intriguing point, or not point, but story is Tom Brady apparently played all of last season on a fully torn MCL. Now, Tom Brady has a play style where he doesn't need to rely all that much on his his MCL. He plays quarterback, and he doesn't move that much. He wears a knee brace already, so it's not like him wearing a knee brace would set off alarms because he just did it. That's just just what Tom Brady did. But apparently, he got the injury in New England, didn't get surgery on it that offseason because he feared teams would shy away from him. And then... Waited until after the year to then do it. I mean, I got to give him credit for playing on a torn MCL all year. But like, I know people who played on torn ACLs, and they played a position who, or they played a position that was a lot more movement than Tom Brady and his and his sit in the pocket, move a couple a couple feet this way. So i I don't know who I'm. I don't know who he disclosed this injury to during the season, if he told Bruce Arians or if he told um, Byron Leftwich, I, I have no idea. But he, he it's not like he plays in a way that would, I mean, make it impossible for him to play. Like Lamar, like Lamar Jackson or Kyler Murray wouldn't be able to play on a torn MCL because they're not pocket passers. They need to move in order to make plays. Tom Brady just sits in the pocket all day and he can dot, he can throw little slant passes and stuff. But, yeah, I mean, who knows how good he'll be next year. He's still in – I mean, he's he's a 40-year-old playing in the NFL. It's impressive. There's really nothing else to say about it other than why didn't he say something earlier? I don't know. Just kind of feel like it's weird to hold off on getting surgery. But – because I feel like – well, with how he played in New England, maybe not. But I feel like some team would have still given him an, given him an opportunity. Um, police aren't gonna go aren't going to charge Richard Sherman for burglary bur- burglary. Jesus! Instead, they're going to be asking for criminal trespassing. If you haven't heard, Richard Sherman had an incident with his with his wife and his in laws. I don't want to get too much into it because it's not really not really any of my business. I mean, yes, he's a professional player, and it, he is opening himself up. But I just think that that Richard Sherman, with what he's shown to be, he's a smart dude. He had a, a mental lapse. He deserves he deserves to be able to handle this privately, and I hope he gets the help he needs. And it's good that they're not charging him for burglary. So I hope he, I hope he gets better. Conor McGregor is saying that he had stress fractures in his leg before he broke his tibia fighting against Dustin Poirier. And I just, I find it very convenient that it comes out a couple days, like the week after, after he gets, gets his legs snapped. Why wasn't this a cause of concern? His quote was, I was injured going into the fight. Ask Daniel White, ask the UFC, ask Dr. Davidson, the head doctor of the UFC. I had stress fractures in my leg going into that cage. So why play? Why fight? I mean, because you're not playing. You're fighting. Why fight? I it doesn't make sense to me. Why? Because you want the money? Okay, well then you knew this was gonna happen, or you knew this has a, had a chance of happening. Like, I don't I don't understand. This is I had I had I thought that Conor McGregor was kind of wrong. I think that it should have been a doctor stoppage, not a TKO. But now, after seeing this, like you got in the cage knowing that this was a possibility, so I don't care that you broke your tibia and and lost. Now you deserve it. If you're stupid enough to get in the ring with stress fractures in your leg, then you deserve to have. The, I mean, you don't deserve to have this happen, but you deserve the result. Like if it, it's a TKO. You knew, Dana White knew, the UFC knew, the Doctor Davidson knew. Like all these guys knew that this was a possibility. You can't claim a doctor's stoppage because of that. This isn't a freak accident because there were there were signs there that said that this could happen. So I'm sorry, Conor McGregor, but you're an idiot. You're you're stupid. Right? It's that it's that simple. Tennis is under fire. With Max Fitch match fixing yet again, but this time it's Wimbledon, the most one of the most prestigious events in all of sports history, or current sports history, I guess. I guess actually all sports history. Wimbledon has been has had a couple matches flagged after multiple multiple reports of match match fixing. It's a bad look for tennis and something that needs to be dealt with swiftly, because you can't have this happen on your biggest stage. Like Wimbledon is the biggest stage for tennis. And a quote from a German newspaper or not a quote, but a report, at least two Wimbledon matches are being investigated for possibility of being fixed. According to a report by German newspaper, Diewelt die welt. I don't know. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but several suspicious and very specific bets took place, alarming betting officials over rigged matches. Tennis has been badly affected by match fixing for years now. The International Tennis Integrity Agency was founded due to rampant rigging in the sport, but the problem has not been fully stamped out. If they figure it out, swift, swift, and and I mean harsh punishment is what you need. You need to come come down on this with an iron fist because, I mean, tennis is a is a sport that isn't that mainstream, but it's enjoyed. I mean, four days out of the out of the year with with all the majors, especially Wimbledon. I mean, you gotta you got you gotta deal with this. Like, you can't keep having this happen. Especially like this would be like if the Masters was being fixed for golf. Like, it's the world's most prestigious event in that sport, and someone fixes to to, to get money on it. To make money off of it, like that's not—it's not good. And Big Twelve news: the Texas Longhorns, all their complaining and, and whining about horns down, has gotten the Big Twelve to crack down on opposing teams using the gesture of horns down. I je- I hate I hate Texas. I hate Texas. If you if you know me, you know I hate the Texas Longhorns, and I horns down all the time. It's one of the greatest things that happen to Big 12 football. It's horns down. I hate it. I hate Texas. Love horns down. It's so weird because if you do it on the field, it's and you go horns down, it's fine. I mean, it's a penalty. They're, they're most likely going to flag it. But if you turn to the stands and do it, they're probably not going to do anything about it. Why does it change? Why does it change if you're doing it towards the stands? Whether... Or if you're doing it on the field, I don't get. I don't. What's different about it? There's literally no difference. It shouldn't be a freaking penalty. Horns down is not like some horrific gesture, like the middle finger, or like you know, like doing the throat slice. Like that's not. It's literally putting. It's like having the rock symbol, like the rock and roll symbol, and then putting it down. That is. That is literally all it is. It could not be more stupid. This is a terrible move by the Big 12, and it's why the Big 12 is a terrible conference. I mean, the only reason they're not the worst is because the Pac-12, like, the Pac-12 is literally off the face of the earth. Like, nobody ever knows about the Pac-12. So, that's my, I mean, that's my rant for this episode. So stupid. Bradley Beal is dropping out of the Olympics for health and safety reasons. They need a replacement. I feel like the only viable replacement is Trey Young because you guard for guard, who else are you going to put there? I mean, the only other option I feel like would be Zion, but like guard for guard. Like get Trey Young out there. I mean, I don't I don't really know why it's a question about it, but whatever. And in final other news segment category. The Pistons are going... Well, I guess I'll just go into... Yeah. The Pistons are going to take Kate Cunningham with the number one pick. It's been talked about in the office and is now basically a done deal that the the Pistons are taking Kate Cunningham with the number one pick. So I don't want to hear any more stupid stories about it because I'm pissed about it. On the record, off the record, real quick for you. On the record, we're going to start with Giannis should win finals MVP... Whether or not the Bucks win or lose, I know it's not it's not tradition to have the losing team or a player on the losing team get the Finals MVP. But I feel like the Finals MVP should be given to the best player, and if the best player is Giannis Antetokounmpo, which it is, then it should be given to Giannis Antetokounmpo. Like I'm sick and tired of this BS. Give it to the man who deserves it, Giannis. I, I, it's It shouldn't be that hard to figure out. It really shouldn't. My other on the record is Conor McGregor is at fault for his injury, and it should be counted as a loss. I stand by that. You heard me just rant about it. I mean, if you're going to get in the ring with stress fractures in your leg, that's your fault, bud. That is your fault. I, it's not anybody else's fault, so whatever. Then off the record, we have Chris Middleton is not a, con, or a max contract player. I do not care about what anybody says. He gets way too many passes to be a max contract player. As I said earlier, a max contract player does not go 29 in game one, 11 in game two, 18 in game three, and then go for a 40. You have to be consistent if you want to be a max contract player. Hell, he had the same stat line as Terry Rozier this season. 20.4 points per game, around 5 assists. I mean, he had an, another rebound. He had 6 rebounds, Terry Rozier had 5. I mean, if you think that deserves a max contract, then I don't know what is wrong with you. You're probably like smoking crack or something. It's I you have Chris has to play more con, or more consistent. And the, you know what's funny about it is this is actually the best basketball he's played his entire career. He's had Prior to this season, this postseason, he had 10 40 point games his entire career. This postseason, through 26 games, he's got four or 35. It was 35 point games, not 40. I mean, like, what What kind of stat is this? You're playing your best basketball, and it still isn't that good. Like, he's, he is the literal definition of a roller coaster. He goes up for a couple games or one game and then flattens out a little bit, like he dips, and then he'll tank, score eleven points. Just awful. And then the I, I I got another one, another off the record. Chris Paul has found a way to make me question how good of a point guard he really is. I didn't I said that if he made the finals, write it in stone he's a top five point guard. But I don't know anymore. I legitimately don't know. If you if you just if you just showed me game 1, I'd still say yes. But after I mean some pretty bad performances in games 2 and 3 and then game 4 when he scored 10 points, I don't know, man. I don't know. I don't know if Chris Paul is really all that anymore. To me, it's just he's got to play better. I didn't think I didn't think he could he could really ruin his top five status with any performance he had in in the finals. But oh my god, he really—he's showing me that maybe he's not. Maybe he's choking. And I don't think that this means like because there's memes on the internet about Chris Paul being the problem in Houston. Now I don't think he was the problem. I still don't because they were up three two on the Warriors when he got hurt and James Harden played six and seven. Was awful. So I still think it was James Harden as the problem. But Chris Paul, my God, man. You gotta step your game up if you want the Sun if, if the Suns want to win, Chris Paul has to play better. It's as simple as that. But Drew Holiday is locking him up. So I don't know. We got team breakout players. Next up. Every single team, I'm gonna give you one or two players that I think are going to have a breakout season. You can take it to the bank. But stick around. Before we get into breakout players, I just found out some breaking news. Kevin Love, along with Bradley Beal, or I should say is joining Bradley Beal in deciding not to play in the Tokyo Olympics, meaning it opens up one more spot, which means I think you go with Zion. I think it's a perfect fit. Obviously, big for big, right? And then the bigger piece of news, Damian Lillard is expected to to request a trade within the coming days. This is huge. We knew we we kind of had a feeling that it was coming. Damian Lillard obviously hasn't had the type of success he wanted in Portland even though he's been one of the most loyal guys in the NBA, especially in a time where there's a lot of moving pieces. I mean, you see KD, you see LeBron, you see these top guys moving, but him and Steph have, have really stayed in and, and Giannis, but he's only been there for a couple of years. He's 26 or 27, whereas Damian and and uh, Steph are older. Steph actually saw his team come through. Dame hasn't had that opportunity, so I listen, if I were him, I'd be frustrated too. First round exit this year, I mean, the furthest they got was the Western Conference Finals, but they got swept. The team around him isn't great. I mean, C.J. McCollum's at okay, too. I wouldn't take him over like Chris Middleton, who I know I just got done bashing, but what teams are in the running for Damian Lillard? That's the question. Off the top of my head, I would say the Sixers are probably a team. I saw that the Warriors are going to try to make a move because in typical Warriors fashion, why wait, right? I mean, you probably have to give up James we- James Wiseman though, right? Like, wh- who who? What other pieces do they have? You'd probably have to give up James Wiseman and a couple firsts. I mean, Damian Lillard's going to get firsts. He's probably going to get four of them. I mean, look at what Drew Holiday went for. They're probably going to have to give up a young piece slash All Star caliber player and a couple firsts. So I think Philadelphia is an option. You trade Ben Simmons. Um, the Heat, the Heat are going to try to make a run because that's what the Heat do. You'd have to give, um, probably Bam, right? Or, because I don't think they take Jimmy. Um, the Celtics, because the Celtics are always in these kind of trade talks. The Lakers are probably going to try to make a move. I don't know who, like, once again, I don't know who the Lakers would give besides just first round picks. Kyle Kuzma sucks. THT. I he, mean, he's not I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't trade him for Dame um who I mean who else off the top of my head that's really what I got maybe I mean maybe the Mavs try to get something out Get give Luka another option although that's too ball dominant ball dominant guys I don't know if that's really what you want the Clippers maybe although I don't know how once again I don't know how they make that work but yeah, I mean, he's getting traded. I'd say Philadelphia is probably, probably the favorite in odds. I'm gonna actually look right now, see who has the best odds to land Damian Lillard because if I were to guess, it's the Sixers, just because they have they have a piece they can trade in Ben Simmons, and I know they said they didn't want to. That it wasn't in their plans this offseason. Oh, here we go. The Sixers would be second. The number one team. The New York Knicks. At plus 250. You got Julius Randle. I mean, you have Derek Rose. But other than that, you have R.J. Barrett. You'd probably have to trade R.J. Barrett, though. That would be the caveat. That would be the piece, is R.J. Barrett. Right? I don't know who else it would be, but that's huge news. The Sixers are second, the Heat are third. Then it's the Lakers, Clippers, Celtics. They round that out. So, who knows? Let's see. Let's see what they say. I guess they wouldn't have a starter, yeah, because Rose came off the bench. And they have multiple firsts in the upcoming draft. I think RJ Barrett has to be a piece though. It has to be. I don't know what else. I do think the six, the Sixers are a possibility though because of the having Ben Simmons. But yeah, okay. Just quick quick little little breaking news, but we're going to get into the breakout players now. All right, let's get into it. Team breakout players. We're going to start in the NFC North. I'm going to start with the Chicago Bears. So as you know, the Chicago Bears at quarterback had Nick Foles and Mitchell Trubisky last year. This year, their options are Andy Dalton and Justin Fields when he becomes ready. So because of that, I put two breakout players, one of them being, being Alan Robinson. Now, Alan Robinson last year with the two quarterbacks I named had 102 receptions, 1,250 yards, and six touchdowns. Just think about if he had competent quarterbacks, what he'd be able to do. I mean, seriously. That is an insane stat line, and his best quarterback was Nick Foles. And he had to play with Mitchell Trubisky. And he did that. And then another, the next guy, Darnell Mooney. If you don't know Darnell Mooney, you need to learn about him. You need to learn his name. You need to learn his game. Because he is going to Break out onto the scene. He had 61 catches for 631 yards and four touchdowns, and dusted Jalen Ramsey. Having these, having a new quarterback like Andy Dalton. I mean, Andy Dalton's a better quarterback than both Nick Foles and Mitchell Trubisky. He's about as average as you can be, but average is fine. That's all the Bears need because of who they have at wide receiver. And then maybe if Justin Fields play, I mean, Justin Fields' ceiling is so much higher than Andy Dalton's. It's unbelievable how good these guys will be because they have a quarterback. Moving on to the Packers, the Packers also have two guys Amari Rodgers, who is a rookie they drafted this year out of Clemson, and Rashawn Gary. Now, Rashawn Gary, I watched at Michigan, he was completely overrated. He was the number one overall recruit in the country and he wasn't even play like it. He had 5 sacks and 35 tackles last year. I have a feeling that he'll bounce back. I don't know why. Or not bounce back, but actually like break out. I I just have this feeling that he he's been holding back and he's finally going to break out and be the player we always thought he was supposed to be. But I do think Amari Rodgers because outside of DeVonte Adams The Packers receiving court isn't all that great. You have MVS. I mean, come on. And Geronimo Allison. Well, Geronimo's not on that team anymore, but... Like, MVS shouldn't be your second best option. And Amari Rodgers is a really good wide receiver, so I think that he steps in, and he has a pretty good rookie season. For the Vikings, I've got Christian Darisaw. Now, the Vikings don't have a ton of players that I think will break out, and so they're the only team with an offensive lineman that I think breaks out and he's a rookie they drafted him with the 13th overall pick but like what else I mean no they didn't they traded back to 21 with the Jets and got him that's right they had one of the better moves of the draft probably the best move of the draft and they got Christian Derrissaw and I think he's a great tackle I think he's going to be perfect for Kirk Cousins who had a really good season last year he was a top 10 quarterback if you look at the stats and I just think because everybody there, the only other player I, I maybe would say would be Alexander Madison, but everybody else is pretty established, I'd say. Then the Lions, I have DeAndre Swift. And, and this one's pretty obvious. A lot of people are calling this one. He's going to break out. The Lions offensive line should be a top five with the talent they have. And DeAndre Swift showed flashes of being a top five running back. He had 114 carries for 521 yards and eight touchdowns. He added on 46 receptions for 357 yards and two touchdowns. I think he's going to rush for over 1,000 yards this year. And I wouldn't be surprised if he also had 500 plus receiving yards. He's going to be good be- because the Lions have a better offensive line. And I think their offensive system is going to be more tailored around running the ball. For the moving on to the NFC East, I got the New York Giants and Kadarius Toney. Now, Kadarius Toney is, he was their pick. He was their first draft pick. I I personally wasn't a huge fan of Kadarius. Thought he was a little overrated. But when you look at the roster, I mean, he he has a spot at slot wide receiver. And he's basically going to be their gadget player. So, I mean, maybe, I I don't know who you put here because I had a hard time putting Saquon because we know what Saquon be, can be. We saw it, even though he was hurt. And I don't think Daniel Jones breaks out. Because he's Daniel Jones and he's still gonna have the turnovers, I think Kadarius Tony could have a really solid rookie year. The Cowboys, CD Lamb, CD Lamb had oh he had seventy four receptions, nine hundred thirty five yards, and five touchdowns his rookie season, but Dak wasn't there for the after the first four games, and he still put up those kind of numbers. I think that CD Lamb could have a f- twelve hundred yard season with. Eight to ten touchdowns. I think that's that's what we're looking at. He's going to have over hundred catches. I think that's what we I think that's what we're. I'm, that's what I'm expecting from CD Lamb this year. I'm expecting him to be a true number one receiver on a team that already has two number one receivers, Michael Gallup and Amari Cooper. And for the um, Washington Football Team, I have Curtis Samuel. Who they uh, brought over from Carolina? He's only going to be twenty five years old, and he had his best year last year. He had seventy seven catches for eight hundred fifty one yards and three touchdowns. And he's going to be the number two in, uh, and that was with Robbie Anderson and DJ Moore both there in Carolina. But he'll be the number two, to uh, Terry McLaurin. Uh, but with Ryan, with Ryan, with Ryan Fitzpatrick there, I mean, he's got a legitimate shot to have because I think Ryan Fitzpatrick's a better quarterback than Teddy Bridgewater. So I think he's got a legitimate shot to put up some serious numbers in terms of stats. And then the next guy is Jamin Davis. He was their first-round pick, 19th overall, out of Kentucky, linebacker. And the reason why I think he's going to be a breakout player is because the defensive line for the football team is the best, if not one of of the best, it's the best, in the league. And they'll keep him clean. I mean, they got De'Aaron Payne or De'Ron Payne, Montez Sweat, Chase Young, I mean, Jonathan Allen, like these guys eat blockers. He's going to have free lanes to run through and make tackles, and he's very athletic. He'll be able to run sideline to sideline. He's going to have over 100 tackles this year. He'll probably have closer to 150, and he's going to be very disruptive in the pass game. So watch out for J- for Jamin Davis. Then for the Eagles, I have Dallas Goddard. Dallas Goddard had a... Down year, I guess, because his, his 2019 season was pretty good. Oh, It was okay. He had more uh, receptions and yards than and touchdowns than he did this past year. He had 46 catches, 524 yards, and three touchdowns. But Zach Ertz's numbers keep going down. And if I were the Eagles, I would be running a lot of 12 personnel because my wide receivers suck. I'd have Devontae and Travis Fulgham out there because who else do you have? I mean, let's be honest, like, their wide receiver situation is not going to be good. Unless Jalen Rager can take, take another a step in year two. It's not going to be good. So I think you, you run a lot of 12 personnel and you have Dallas Goddard be one of your main receiving threats. And I don't think Jalen Hurts is going to want to push the ball too far down the field. So intermediately, Dallas Goddard is your guy. And so I think he's going to have a, a pretty good year this year. For the Bucs, it's two rookies because how are you going to break out if you were already the best team? I feel like the only breakout, like real breakout candidate for them is, I mean, Leonard Fournette maybe because of what he did in the playoffs was a lot better than what we saw in the regular season. So that could be an option or Antonio Brown because he didn't get a ton of volume targets like he's usually, like he usually does. But I went with Joe Tryon, their first round pick, number 32 pick overall out of Washington and Jalen Darden, who is a sneaky good receiver that a lot of people didn't have on their boards. He's a really, uh, he's a gadget guy. And I honestly, he's one of my favorite players in the draft. So I would say, I would say Jalen Darden is a really good, really good pickup um, for the Saints. I have Jameis Winston, and I know a lot of people aren't going to like that, but the reason I have Jameis Winston is because I I saw what he could be in Tampa with a coach who really didn't care about taking care of the ball and he just wanted to push it down the field. And then if he goes to New Orleans, who with Sean Payton and under Drew Brees, they really profess taking care of the ball and making good decisions. The last time Jameis Winston played a full season, he had 5,109 yards, 33 touchdowns, but he did have 30 picks, and he had a bunch of fumbles too. If you, take, if you get him to take care of the ball, Jameis Winston could be one of the better quarterbacks in the league, and I, I'm saying that in all seriousness. I know he gets clowned a lot, but I think they should go with him as a starter. And I legitimately think they will be happy with with that decision and, and how, he's, how he'd play. I mean, they got him on a great deal. I think Jameis can really take that step and break out. For the Falcons, I have Kyle Pitts because Kyle Pitts. I mean, he's going to be a top 10 tight end right away, immediately. For the Panthers, I have Sam Darnold. And it's the same situation that, that Jameis has. Sam Darnold is coming from a team in which Adam Gase was his head coach who I vehemently hate. I despise Adam Gase with a passion. I think he's a terrible coach. I don't think he should ever have a job again. He's riding the coattails of Peyton Manning. That's essentially what it is. But last year he had 2,208 yards, 9 touchdowns, and 11 picks. I think he only played like 12 games. But I do think that that Matt Rule and Joe Brady can can get Sam Darnold to, to where he needs to be. To an unhindered quarterback. Because Adam Gase, I don't, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm just not even going to talk about him anymore, but for the Seahawks, I put two guys. I originally had one, and then I thought about it some more, and I decided to put Chris Carson on there too. He was hurt for a lot of last year, for the beginning of last year. That's why the Seahawks aired the ball out because they didn't have a running back, and then they got Chris Carson back, and he ran for 141 yards, 681, or he ran for 140, he had 141 carries, 681 yards, and five touchdowns. The running game was a lot better in the second half of the season, and it was because of Chris Carson. And the other guy is a rookie. His name is Dwayne Eskridge out of Western Michigan. And I, I do think because they got rid of Schottenheimer, see, the issue is, is that if one of these guys plays really well, it means the other one's going to have opportunities taken away from him. Cause I think that I do think the Seahawks are gonna push the ball a lot more. They're gonna be a lot more like they were first half of the season rather than second half of the season in terms of offense. And I think Eskridge is the perfect third option for that team. You have Metcalf, you have DK, and then you have Tyler Lockett. I think that Eskridge fits perfectly in there, and he can be your slot receiver. And just, I mean, he can dominate. If you if if you have to put your third best corner on Dwayne Eskridge, I feel bad for you because he's gonna eat you up. For the Cardinals, I have Rondell Moore. And I am one of the biggest fans of Rondell Moore, I think, in the whole country. I love Rondell Moore. I think he was very underappreciated and undervalued going into the draft. And I think he is, I mean, the Andy Isabella experiment in Arizona failed. And I think that Rondell Moore is the perfect guy for Kyler Murray. They might not be able to see each other which is hilarious, they literally, I mean, legitimately might not be able to see each other over the line. If Rondell Moore ever runs like a crossing route, I don't know if Kyler will be able to see him, but, (laughs) but I do, I love Rondell Moore. I think he's a great gadget player. He's insanely hard to tackle because of his, his body, his body build. He's stout. He's got tree trunks for legs. I mean, he's just, he's just going to be a force and I think is a perfect spot for Cliff Kingsbury to try and resurrect his career. San Francisco 49ers, I have Debo Samuel. Now, Debo got hurt last year, like most of the other 49ers did, but he had thirty one or 33 catches, 391 yards, and one touchdown in only seven games. So it's not, I mean, it's not like he put up insane numbers when he played, but he only played seven games. And I do think that whether or not Trey Lance, I think if Trey Lance is the quarterback, you could see a lot more targets towards Debo. But if Jimmy Garoppolo is the quarterback, they're probably going to stay in the flats a little bit more and and hand him the ball off instead of actually throw it to him. But I do think Debo is ready to break out in year three. I think it's I think it's his time for the Rams. This one should be pretty obvious. Matthew Stafford, he had four thousand eighty four yards, twenty six touchdowns, and ten picks. In a full 16 games last year for the Detroit Lions, and with Sean McVay calling plays, I'm telling you he's going to throw for over 5,000 yards. They might not throw it enough for him to make it to 5,000 because they have Cam Akers, but I I do think that Matthew Stafford is going to have an MVP like season, and I'm going to keep saying it until people realize that. For the Browns, I originally had JOK, Jeremiah Wusu Koromoa, but I'm going to change my I'm going to change it to. Odell Beckham Jr. I know it's weird to say that he's going to break out because he was um he was a top 5 wide receiver when he was in New York but he has played I mean he was hurt for all of last year essentially. He played like the first 5 games or whatever it was. And the year before that he was eh. I do think I do think that he breaks out. I think that this is the, this is the year for Odell Beckham Jr. to finally make it the make it the Browns worthwhile for trading him in that blockbuster deal that we thought was going to send Cleveland to the top. He hasn't really panned out, but I do think that this is the year for the Bengals. I have Joe Burrow, 2,688 yards, 13 touchdowns and five picks in 10 games. I mean, it's, I mean, it's a rookie stat line. It's what you would expect from a rookie. And I had to, I mean, I had to include him with Jamar Chase because that's the reason I think that Joe Burrow is going to break out is because he has Jamar Chase as his number one option. And it, not only is Jamar Chase just a great wide receiver, but the connection they have from that year at LSU or the two years at LSU, I mean, come on. You can't, you can't teach a connection like that. It was, I mean, the numbers they put up were gaudy. And I expect them to do the same. And I expect both of them to have an amazing year. For the Steelers, I have Pat Fryermuth. It's either him or Najee Harris, and I like Pat Fryermuth a lot more. I feel like I feel like there's going to be a lot of 12 personnel with Eric Ebron and Pat Fryermuth for for the Steelers because your offensive line sucks one, and two. I mean, you have you have a pretty good wide receiving court. You have um, Juju. You have Clay. Um, Chase Claypool. I, I don't know what that was. And you have Deontay Johnson. And you have Eric Ebron at tight end. But I do think Pat Fryermuth can be more of a dynamic blocker and you know short, intermediate-type route runner for them. And I, I just think that you need someone to block for Najee. If you're running the quick stuff that you were last year, you don't need anybody to block to get the ball to Pat Fryermuth. And your offensive line definitely isn't in the position to be able to block. So this might be a little biased because Pat Frymuth was who I wanted the Jaguars to take in the second round, but moving on to the Ravens, J.K. Dobbins. This one was an easy pick for me. I th- I, I had uh, J.K. in fantasy last year, and I I knew he was going to break out. I just didn't know when. I knew he was going to have his games, and he finally did towards the end of the year, once they finally got rid of Mark or let, sat Mark Ingram. He has 134 carries. 800 and 805 yards and nine touchdowns that wasn't counting his receiving it wasn't great but i think it was like 18 receptions for 159 yards and a touchdown or two but i think that with with the amount that the ravens run the ball that jk jk's numbers going up is a is a guarantee basically because he's going to have more volume carries i don't think he'll split with gus edwards as much as he did with mark ingram I think it'll probably be a 75-25 split or a 70-30, something along those lines. But I do expect J.K. Dobbins to get majority of the carries that aren't Lamar Jackson's. For the Bills, I like Dawson Knox. I do. I think, I think he, him being the tight end. I, I mean, you have Stephon Days, you have Cole Beasley. But I do think that Josh Allen, in order for him to take that like next, next step, he needs to have a connection with this tight end. You look at Tom Brady, you look at Aaron Rodgers, you look at Patrick Mahomes, you look at, I mean, you don't have to look at Russell Wilson because, I mean, DK's basically built like a tight end. But they have Travis Kelsey. I, I i mean, maybe it's not Kelsey anymore, but who knows? You have Rob Gronkowski or O.J. Howard or Cameron Brait for for Tom. And then you have Robert Tunyon. Like, you don't, you don't need Dawson Knox to go for a ton of yards. You just need Dawson Knox to have 11 touchdowns like Tunyon did. Once you get to the red zone, you need to be able to rely on Dawson Knox, and I think this is the year. They developed that connection, and Brian Diebold really relies on him in the red zone. And then I also put Ed Oliver. I, I will not give up on Ed Oliver. I don't care how bad he plays or how lethargic he looks on the on the field. I'm not giving up on him. I thought he was going to be a freak coming out of, uh, out of Houston, and I thought they got an absolute steal when they picked him at 17. He had three sacks, 33 tackles, and a forced fumble last year. I think this is the year. I'm going to keep saying it until it happens. This is the year Ed Oliver finally shows that he was a first-round draft pick, and he was an absolute steal. For the Patriots, I have two wide receivers, Nelson Aguilar and Kedrick Bourne. They had eerily similar reception numbers, but Aguilar, listen. Nelson Aguilar was terrible when he was in Philly, but last year for the Raiders, he had a really good year. 48 receptions, 896 yards, and eight touchdowns. That was a really, really solid year. Then for Kedrick Bourne over in San Francisco, 49 receptions, 667 yards, and two touchdowns. I do think that Cam Newton has a better year this year. He was playing with a, a messed up shoulder last year, and that's why he couldn't push the ball down the field. And especially after COVID, you saw, I mean, his demeanor changed. The way he played changed. We saw him in Seattle, and then he was never that player again. So I think, I think that this year they're obviously going to run the ball a lot. They they brought in Hunter Henry and Johnu Smith. They're going to run the ball, but they're also going to throw it too because they'll be able to run that play action. And Cam Newton is going to have a better year, and it's going to be because of these two, Nelson Aguilar and Kendrick Bourne for the Jets, Corey Davis. They brought him over from Tennessee, signed him on a nice little four-year deal. 65 receptions, 984 yards and five touchdowns as the number 2 in Tennessee behind AJ Brown. He was the number 2 and he put up those kind of numbers. Imagine if he's the number 1 and he actually the the issue is the only issue I have with this is it's a rookie quarterback in Zach Wilson. And Zach Wilson and Ryan Tannehill play two completely different ways at the quarterback position. Ryan Tannehill is, he's not a true pocket passer because he does get out, but he is play action. You have to get him off of play action or else he's not going to be a good quarterback. Zach Wilson can stand in the pocket, but he really makes his plays on the outside improvising. So will Corey Davis be able to Connect with him where they're on the same page once that play breaks down because that's going to be when Corey Davis makes his money. For the Dolphins, Jalen Phillips, that was an easy one. Jalen Phillips has all the athletic traits to be a premier edge rusher. He is going and it's going to be year one that he realizes it. I'm telling you, I'm he's staying in Miami. He was a my he, he went from UCLA. He had his issues in UCLA. He comes to Miami, he transfers, doesn't have a great year by, I I mean, his numbers aren't amazing off the wall, but this, the traits he showed are, I mean, this kid, this kid's got it. He really does. If he gets another concussion, I would be a little bit worried because that's four concussions, but I think Jalen Phillips finally, or the team, a team finally took a chance on him. The Dolphins did. And I think it really pays off, especially because he's under Brian Flores' system and edge rushers always seem to flourish under Brian Flores. For the Jaguars, I got LaVisca Chenault. I'm a Jaguars fan. I'm as tapped in as you can be to the Jaguars organization as a fan. I follow all the accounts. And every report out of camp is that LaVisca Chenault is the best wide receiver on the team. He's even better than DJ Chark and Marvin Jones. I thought that was insane, but I'm going to buy in. The guy had 58 catches for 600 yards and five touchdowns. He is their gadget player. He's fast. He's agile. I mean, now he's got Trevor Lawrence at quarterback. I think he year two is when he puts it together and just, oh my God. He's going to make a huge change. And I'm telling you. Watch out for LaVisca Chenault. That Jags team is going to be better than a lot of people think. For the Colts, I have Carson Wentz. I've I've literally been saying this since the trade happened. Carson Wentz is going to be going to return to himself, like his mb like his MVP season or MVP run season. He's going to return to that form. Who was his offensive coordinator back then? Frank Reich. Who is his head coach now? Frank Reich. I am telling you, Frank Reich has a connection with Carson Wentz that unlocked his ability to play quarterback. Doug Peterson did not have that same connection. That's why there was such a difference between his play. Maybe it was the ACL. I don't think it was. I think there's a mental block there that only Frank Reich can undo. That's why they traded for him. That's why they traded that second-round pick is because Frank Reich knows what Carson Wentz is and knows he can fix it. And they got Jack... So, I mean, look at I, his his weapons in Philly. Travis Fulgham, Jalen Rager, J.J. Ortega-Whiteside, Greg Ward. Those are those are the guys that, that really played. If you really want me to go through the rest of them, you got Quez Watkins, John Hightower... And Michael Walker; those are the wide receivers they had. At tight end, they had Zach Ertz, Dallas Goddard, were the two that really played. For the Colts, he's got T.Y. Hilton, Michael Pittman Jr., Paris Campbell, Zach Pascal. At tight end, he's got Jack Doyle, Jack Doyle and Mo Ali Cox. Like already. The, the skill players, and he's got Jonathan Taylor at running back. The skill player, and he's got freaking, I forgot about Naheem Hines. This Colts running back room is actually insane. You got Marlon Mack, Naheem Hines, and Jonathan Taylor. Holy crap. But I'm telling you, the Colts are going to be better this year, and it's going to be because of the play of quarterback Carson Wentz. This one might shock a few people for the Texans. Like, who's gonna like who on the Texans would you think is going to break out? When I was looking through the roster and trying to figure it out, I saw a name that was really familiar to me being a Michigan football fan. Nico Collins. I know what Nico Collins can be. Not a lot of people do. Not a lot of people understand. They just look at his stats. They look at his stats and see that it wasn't a ton. Like, he didn't have a ton of stats. I watched the Michigan games. Watch all of them. I know exactly why Nico Collins didn't have the stats that he should have because Michigan all he, all Michigan does is run the ball. They never they hardly ever pass the ball, and even when they do, they actually they they hardly ever throw him the ball. His most of his catches come on jump balls, which one he is really good at going up and getting a ball. I mean, he's probably one of the better catching traffic guys and contesting catches catches catching guys that were in the draft last year. And it was a really good wide receiver class. And then you throw on top of that that he was actually, from the people who went to the Senior Bowl, they said that he was the best wide receiver there. And he looked like a completely different player than he was at Michigan. Not completely different, but better. He was, because the issue with him was his route running wasn't as polished. He didn't have as much separating speed. But then at the Senior Bowl, he showed that he could separate because of his polished route running. Now, it's not like you know top tier NFL route running, but it's good enough. And so I think if Nico Collins has a quarterback to throw him the ball, I think he has a legitimate shot to be the uh, the best wide receiver on the on the Texans. Now for the Titans, I have Bud Dupree. So Bud Dupree spent all of his five years, I think it is so far in in Pittsburgh, and I think that. He wasn't great. He had a, I mean, he had stats, but like you watch him play, and, and there was nothing special about him. Like last year, he had eight sacks, thirty-one tackles, and two forced fumbles, but he played on a really stacked defense. I think that getting with Rabel, getting kind of a, a different energy about him, being in a different locker room, a change of scenery, will really be beneficial for him because the Titans were one of the worst defenses in the league last year, and they needed. At, like their their main issue is that they couldn't rush the passer. That was the issue. And I think that Bud Dupree might be able to give them a boost in that department. And I think if the Titans want to be a serious contender, he has to. So I think Mike Vrabel might put it on himself to make sure Bud Dupree gets that extra work in and and is able to take that next stop. Moving on to the last division the AFC West, the Chiefs. So I don't know what's going to happen with Frank Clark. I'm leaning towards he's going to get released right now. Right now, That would mean that the two edge rushers on the Chiefs that would start are Mike Dana and Taco Charlton. They're both Michigan products. I know it's weird. Frank Clark's also a Michigan product. The Michigan D-line, or I mean the Chiefs D-line loves Michigan guys. But each of them had a terrible year last year. Dana had two and a half sacks and 25 tackles and limited uh, playing time. And Taco Charlton had two sacks and seven tackles and one forced fumble in, I think, seven games. So neither one of them had a great year. But if they're going to be starting, they're going to have to get volume. And I I watched Taco Charlton play when he was at Michigan. I didn't watch Mike Dana as much because I was younger, but I remember Taco Charlton being disruptive. He was a pretty good edge rusher. He was pretty good defensively, I mean, in the run game. I just think that they need a shot, and I think this is the year the Chiefs need their defensive ends, defensive line to be good, because they—I mean—they still have. Um, oh come on! I can't. Oh, this is not good. This is not good. Chris Jones, there it is. They still have Chris Jones, but, I mean, they need edge help, and I think that these two need to step up. So that's why I'm, I'm picking them, for the Broncos. Easy easy money, Javante Williams. He's probably gonna end up taking over the starting running back role from Melvin Gordon. He's just that good. I mean, him at North Carolina was he was unstoppable, basically. I he's just I mean, he's a really short, stout, hard guy to tackle. Moves like he should, I mean, moves like he shouldn't. But I think that I think that putting him in that offense where they're gonna to have to run the ball. Because they don't have a quarterback. And when they do have, like, when they actually do throw the ball, they're going to have to check it down a lot. The offensive line isn't bad, but, I mean, they have Cortland Sutton. They have Jerry Judy. Like, they have wide receiver options. But I just think that Javante Williams is going to get a lot of a lot of targets, too. I think he's, he's a prime candidate to have a great season. For the Raiders, I picked two rookies again because... I was going to pick Derek Carr, but Derek Carr actually had a really good year last year, and I don't think much is changing for him other than he doesn't have Nelson Aguilar anymore. And his offensive line sucks. So is he going to have as much time in the pocket? I'm not sure. But I do think the defense for the Raiders is going to be better because they've put so much time and money and resources into it. They got they picked up Tyree Gillespie and Divine Diablo to mention too. And I think that both of those guys... We're great pickups. I don't know how much Tyree Gillespie is going to play. I hope he. I hope he does play because I think he's going to be a very, very solid safety in the league. I think he's was very underrated coming out, and I think that he's got a legitimate shot to be their starter. But Divine Diablo, because Corey Littleton isn't an the answer, he's just not a good. I don't know for for whatever reason when he came over from the Rams, he just didn't play the same last year. I don't know what it was, but he wasn't good in coverage, which is why they brought him over. Divine Diablo played safety. So he has that coverage ability. He has that speed. He has that side-to-side, you know, agility that can be disruptive in the pass game. And he's big, so they build him out a little bit. He can be pretty disruptive in the run too. I think if I were to guess, it'd probably be Divine Diablo because I just don't know if Tyree Gillespie is going to be able to play it or how many uh, snaps he's going to get. But if Tyree Gillespie gets on the field, he's going to make an impact, and then he's probably going to take over the job. And then the last team, the Los Angeles Chargers, Michael Williams. Justin Herbert's going to have a better year this year. So those targets got to go to somebody. And Mike Williams, who only had 48 catches for 756 yards and five touchdowns, he's going to be the prime candidate because it's either going to be him or Keenan Allen. Keenan Allen already had a really good year last year. I think he he eclipsed 1,000 yards. So Mike Williams, watch out for him because he is going to dominate with Justin Herbert throwing him the deep ball. Thank you guys for listening. I hope it was I hope you enjoyed. I mean, that was a that was a fun episode to do. A lot of news, a lot of interesting stuff happening with USA basketball. We'll see what happens. And especially just overall in the NBA world. Catch you guys on the flip. See ya.